So this morning, if you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 8. We're resuming our series in the Gospel of Mark called Our Servant King. We've been taking a look at the person of Jesus and seeing just how big and bold Mark presents him to be and how we ought to respond as disciples of Christ as we follow in his footsteps. This morning, we find ourselves in Mark chapter 8. Verses 11 through 21 together. If you've got a Bible in front of you, just go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together as a church body. But in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, uh, we read these words. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now listen, I don't know about you, but I love good bread. Okay, I'm a sucker for good bread. In fact, uh, I can remember in my, I can't do this anymore, okay? I'm in my 40s now. But I remember in my 20s when we used to visit Luigi's Italian restaurant here in Rockwall. Uh, I would sit down at the table and they always bring out the bread, okay? Uh, Before they ever bring out whatever meal you've ordered, they bring out these basketfuls of bread and butter, and I could sit there when I was in my 20s, and I could, just eat, I could probably eat four pieces of bread before my meal ever got to the table. Right? I could destroy that stuff. I could inhale it. So I love good bread. Put that butter on it. Man, it's, just, it's dense, and yet it's light at the same time. I don't know how they do that. It's a, like a miracle, okay? But I love good bread with a little bit of butter spread on top. In fact, when I would go to Luigi's, sometimes I'd wake up the next morning and feel like I had to repent of my gluttony. Because I'd eaten too much, right? But in order to make great bread, both dense and airy and fluffy and light, you need a leavening agent. And oftentimes uh, in bread recipes, it's something like yeast that might be added to the dough in order to cause it to rise. So, see, in cooking, literal leaven is some kind of substance that's used in dough to make it rise, to make it airy, so it's not just so compact that you can't hardly chew it. Right? That's what literal leaven is. But throughout the Bible, there is Jesus uses this language. The Old Testament uses this language. Uh, the New Testament authors use the language of leaven. Because throughout the Bible, leaven came to symbolize something. It came to represent something. And this text that we just read this morning seems to turn, right? It seems to turn on this statement that Jesus makes in verse 15 when he says, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, if we're to understand what Jesus means by this warning that he issues to his followers, to his disciples, we need to understand where this language comes from. See, in the Bible, leaven was a small portion of old dough. Okay, so dough that had already been used, that had been left out to ferment. And as it fermented, it became an agent that could be added into the new dough in order to make it rise, right? And to create that great tasting bread. Yet when God redeems Israel from Egyptian captivity, it's interesting that when he comes in to bring them out of slavery, he comes in to bring them out of bondage, they have to leave nearly everything behind. They can take with them no provisions. And so whenever they come out of slavery, God institutes a feast for his people called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because they had to leave so hastily in God's redemptive work, bringing them out of slavery, that they could take nothing with them from their old life to bring it into their new life. And so leaven in the Old Testament, in Exodus 12, we read about this feast 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to remind the people that their life, their old ways of living, their old ways of thinking was now behind them. It was left in Egypt. In fact, if you fast forward in the New Testament, the authors of the Scriptures use the language very similarly. Look, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when the Apostle Paul calls on the Corinthian Christians to discipline those in their midst who were living in public and prolonged sin. Because Paul's talking about right a, a, a stepson and a mom who are doing things they shouldn't be doing. Okay? And so he says, listen, you boast about your tolerance. You boast about your acceptance. You boast about how free, how free it is to be here. But he says, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, listen, you, are, are, you already are unleavened. You've already been cleansed of these old ways of thinking and these old ways of living. So operate consistent with the newness that Christ has brought in your life. So the authors of the scriptures use, in the New Testament use that language very similarly. See, leaven in the Bible came to refer to this unseen, corrupting influence that's still present and active in our hearts and in our minds that's held over from our old ways of living when we were still slaves to sin. That's what it came to represent. And if left unchecked, what it does is the same thing as physical leaven. It begins to spread. It begins to make its way into every part of the lump of dough. It spreads through the heart and mind of the individual and eventually spreads through the collective conscience of a culture if left unchecked. So church, this morning, listen, I want to ask a question. I wonder what leaven is still left in our lives. I wonder what leaven is still left in our lives. What areas of individual and collective consciences are still in a state of corruption that Jesus would warn us against as his followers? Now, the way that, that Mark uses this particular idea of leaven when he refers to the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, right? he's, he's pressing even to a more specific use of that word. And so here's what I want to do in the time that we have together this morning. I want us to consider what this leaven is that Mark is warning us against, in particular, what it produces and how do we guard against it. Okay, what is it? What does it result in in our lives and how do we guard against it? First of all, the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is this. Listen, it is petrified unbelief in and opposition to Jesus. It's petrified unbelief in opposition to Jesus. As a child, I can remember uh, my family had a little trailer house on Toledo Bend, which is a large reservoir uh, between Texas and Louisiana. And we would go there uh, many, many weekends and for summer vacations. And we would go. And one of the things that, my, listen, my family, and it was a 1950-something single-wide trailer that they added a second side to. So it was really just a redneck double wide, okay? That's what it was, all right? But it was lakefront redneck double wide, okay? And so we had this old pontoon boat as well, okay, that, was, that they had to rip the floor out of and replace and recarpet and rewire everything, and it still looked ugly as sin. But we would get on that pontoon boat every summer, and we would travel across the lake to the we, we were on the Louisiana side, traveled across to the Texas side because it was on the Texas side where there were like some beachy areas where the sediment had washed up over the years, creating this sandy area. And we would go and we would swim and we would play and grill and all kinds of stuff, but we would explore the beach. And then we found all kinds of things over there. We found arrowheads from the Native Americans who lived in that area. And we found hordes and hordes of petrified wood. Okay, petrified wood. And we would bring it home and we would put it, my, my parents would use it because they didn't have gutters on their house. They would use it to catch all the rainwater that ran off so it didn't create holes, right? 
I'm telling you, that's just the way I grew up. All right. So, but I can remember walking the shores of Toledo Bend, collecting all of this petrified wood and being amazed by it because petrified wood essentially is a fossil and it forms whenever plant material, organic material, gets buried by soil and sediment, okay, and protected from the decay that would be. Uh, brought about through oxygen and other organisms that would eat on it. And then rich groundwater supplies begin to pass through that organic material. And as they pass through that organic material, over time, what they do is they replace the organic material with inorganic material. Okay? So they replace the wood with things like silica and calcite and pyrite and opal. Go look it up. Right? That's the science behind it. But they would replace all this inorganic material with organic material with inorganic material. And over time, what would happen is that soft, malleable wood that could be carved and shaped into things that would be productive for purposes turns into something that is no longer shapeable, but is now sharp and rigid and rocky and hard. That's what happens whenever wood is petrified. What was once able to be shaped for productive purposes becomes sharp and unmalleable, unshapeable. And listen, when Jesus warns his followers about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, he was warning them against a petrified, unbelieving heart that was opposed to him, that was opposed to his work, that was opposed to his person. See, the Pharisees, let me, let me show you why I say that. The Pharisees in Mark's gospel had already written Jesus off as an agent of the devil. Okay? If you were with us in our, as we've worked through this series, if you go back into Mark chapter 3, the, the, the Pharisees have this confrontation with Jesus. And in following that confrontation, they send scribes down from Jerusalem to, to see what Jesus is doing. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. This was their estimation of Jesus. They had already written him off as an agent of the devil, and yet here they are in Mark chapter 8 saying, Jesus, give us a sign. Jesus, prove to us who you are. When they had already made up in their minds who he was. So they're wanting to not say, hey, listen, if you, if you do something that's pretty crazy enough, we're going to believe that you are who you say you are. No, they're saying, listen, we already know who we think you are. We just want to put you on public trial and display. They had a hard, unbelieving heart that was opposed to him. But he says, not only the, the leaven of the Pharisees, but also of Herod. Listen, in Mark chapter 6, you find the story of Herod and John the Baptist. Now, Herod was intrigued by John the Baptist. And one of the ways we know that is because Herod, for many, for, for many days, protected John the Baptist. He held him in captivity, and yet he would bring him out to hear what John had to say. And so John would preach. And Herod, it says, was greatly perplexed. Right? He was greatly interested, captivated by what John had to say. And yet Herod never repented. Why do I say that? Because Herod ultimately took the head of John the Baptist at the request of the daughter of one of his wives who was once his brother's wife that he had taken for his own. Okay, so Herod never repents. Herod's heart is hardened toward the person and work of Jesus. The Pharisees' hearts are hardened toward the person and work of Jesus. They are petrified. They cannot be shaped. They cannot be molded. They are not malleable. They are not soft. They are calloused and hard. In fact, they're so calloused and hard that they who opposed each other, because Herod represented Roman rule and the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with Rome, and yet in Mark chapter 3, we read that after Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, it says in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them on how to destroy him. Not only did they have a hard heart that was unbelieving, but they had a heart that was full of opposition to Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, they wanted to see him destroyed. And so what Jesus is warning his disciples against here is a heart that was incapable of being shaped 
and carved and molded for the glory of God and the good of the world that he loves. He's warning them against a petrified heart full of unbelief and opposition. Now I find it interesting because he's not preaching to the masses here. He's talking to who? His disciples. He's talking to those who have left houses and land and mothers and fathers to follow him. And Jesus says, beware of that leaven in your life. Beware of the areas of your life in which there is unbelief, a lack of faith and trust that Jesus is Lord, that he's good, that he's good overall. Beware of those areas in your life which have become so calcified or petrified that they can't be shaped any longer. Beware of those old things, ways of thinking and the old ways of living that you have brought with you and that continue to be pervade your life even today. And so the question for you and I this morning is this, how do we recognize this leaven? How do we recognize it? Listen, same way we recognize almost anything else, you recognize this leaven by what it produces in a life. And listen, you recognize its presence by what it produces. As I thought about that this week, I thought about three areas that it has a, a, creates a product in our lives, right? That Jesus himself would actually call out the Pharisees on account of. And the first one is this. The first one is this. Is that it creates, it produces a concern for external appearances without internal realities. A concern for external appearances without internal realities. In Matthew chapter 23, you find Jesus perhaps issuing his most scathing rebuke to anyone that he issues throughout his earthly ministry. And it's to these religious leaders, it's to these Pharisees whose hearts are hardened in unbelief and opposition to him. And some of the things that he says, like a prophet of the Old Testament, he begins to pronounce woes upon them. And listen, when, when the prophet said woe about something, that meant judgment was coming. That God was going to unleash something. Right? And so Jesus, upon the keepers of the Mosaic law, begins to pronounce these woes. And listen to some of the woes that he pronounces. He says in Matthew chapter 23, 25 and 26, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Jesus says you give so much attention to the external appearances and the way that you are perceived by other people, and yet the internal realities are absent in your life. So listen, that is a part of the product of the leaven of the Pharisees in our lives. Is there an inordinate concern for how I appear publicly with little to no concern for the realities in my life privately. Listen, one way to recognize this in your life is the degree to which you readily confess sin to others in your life. The degree to which you readily confess sin. See, in Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents fall and sin enters into the world, okay? So they take of the tree, she eats, he eats, the eyes of both of them are open, and they realize they don't have on any clothes. See, before that, they were blissfully unaware. Now they're painfully aware. And so what is the first move of our first parents when they sin is to do what? Is to cover and to conceal and to hide because if they believed that they could hide from God and they could hide from each other, that they could sufficiently cover their shame and their guilt. That's, that was their first move. Okay? That was their, like, going to the doctor and he hits your knee with that little hammer. It's just a knee-jerk reflex. And listen, that knee-jerk reflex had been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation because that is our natural default is that whenever we sin, listen, 
we conceal and we cover and we hide. We think that if we can cover and conceal and hide, our guilt and our shame will be okay because we can appear to everyone else as if we are put together. Our external appearances. And yet the Bible, listen church, it calls us not to cover and conceal, but to confess and be healed. Not to cover and conceal, but to confess and be healed. In James chapter 5, and verse 16, we read these words, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James says if you want to be put back together, if you want to be whole, Right, you can't hide, you can't cover and conceal, but you have to confess it. Let me ask you the question this morning, church. What is your knee-jerk reaction whenever you sin? I know what mine is. My natural default when I'm operating in accordance to the flesh is out of fear, is to be concerned about external appearances and to cover it and to conceal it rather than to confess it to a brother or sister who not only wants the glory of God, but they want my good in the midst of it. See, if we refuse to work through the painful prospect of confessing our sins to one another, to other people in our life who care for us and want to see our growth in Christ's likeness, then there is a lump of leaven in your life. Because there is a concern about external appearances without internal realities. Second, second, the presence of pride and self-righteousness. It's how you identify this petrified and unbelieving heart as opposed to Jesus or areas, pockets of that in your life. Listen, in Luke chapter 18, verses 19 to 14, Jesus tells a parable about two men who go up to pray. I want to read it to you this morning. In Luke chapter 18, and verse 9, Luke records, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, one of the products of this petrification in our lives is pride and self-righteousness. And one way to recognize pride and self-righteousness operating in your life is to take stock, listen, of whether or not you're always suspect of others and never suspect of yourself. If you're always suspect of the intentions and the motives and the actions of other people, but you never look in the mirror and are suspect of your motives, of your intentions, and of your actions, then pride is operating in your life. In his book, When Sinners Say I Do, Dave Harvey says that one of the results of a robust understanding of the doctrine of sin in the context of a marriage, and listen, I would add to that any relationship, any relationship, is that you are always suspect of yourself and you're never suspect of others. And listen, that will destroy a marriage. It will set you up as enemies, opposed to one another, rather than working together. And listen, that's the same in any relational context. It's the same in church life. It's the same in vocational life. Right? If you're always suspect of others and never suspect of yourself, and you don't have a full grasp of the doctrine of sin because you believe sin is something out there in them, but not in here, in you. But if you have a full grasp of the doctrine of sin, understand that every part of me has been impacted. And there may be remnants in, every, in all kinds of areas of my life of these old leavened ways of thinking. These old leavened ways of living. If you really grasp the doctrine of sin, then when you look in the mirror, you will be suspect of your motives. You will be suspect of your intentions, and you'll be suspect of your actions. 
But if you're never a suspect of yourself and only suspect of others, there is a lump of leaven in your life that's producing pride and self-righteousness. So do you confess sin to others? Are you suspect of yourself? Third, and finally, one way, another way to recognize this is not only through the presence of pride and self-righteousness, but also through the absence of justice, mercy, and faithfulness. See, in Matthew 23, 23 to 24, again, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, in other words, the tithing, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus uses a brilliant play on words. You got a little gnat. Listen, I've got tons of these in my house right now. Okay? Every summer we battle these little things because we keep bananas out on the counter or, you know, fruit, fresh fruit in the home. And so they just invade our space. And so they're little, I mean, you can barely see them, but they annoy the Whatever you want to fill in that word, they annoy you like crazy, right? They're buzzing around everywhere. You think of a gnat and a camel, a big massive animal. He says what you're doing is you're running things through a strainer, and you're straining out the gnat, but you're just, that's a, just a beautiful word picture. You're swallowing a camel because you're giving attention to all these scruples in these areas of your life, but you're neglecting these big areas, he says, of justice and of mercy and of faithfulness. And in these verses, Jesus echoes one of the paramount texts calling the people of God to a particular way of living in the Old Testament. In Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, we read these words, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Micah says, what am I going to bring in order to worship God? Right? All, what possessions do I have? What livestock can I parade? What sacrifices can I make? What offerings can I provide? And then he says in verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You see, this idea of justice is found all over the Scriptures. It's found throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. And it's found here on the mouth of lips of Jesus in the New. And justice throughout the Scriptures is right behavior toward others whereby they taste or experience what is good, what is right, and what is pleasant in their experiences in life. And listen, the idea of justice in the Bible is almost always exclusively connected to the concept of mercy and followed closely behind by faithfulness. In other words, the pursuit of justice, of people experiencing what is right and good and pleasant in their experiences of life, the pursuit of justice is an expression of mercy for those experiencing the sting and suffering and pain of injustice and is an expression of the faithfulness to God. Why they're always bound up together in the Bible. And listen, there, there are at least three areas in which I think we could apply this to human, our lives today. First, I want you to consider something. Human trafficking. Human trafficking. Listen, there are currently an estimated total of 313,000 victims of human trafficking in Texas alone. It's larger than the population of Garland. 313,000 victims of human trafficking. In the state of Texas alone, there are approximately 79,000 minors that are the victims of sex trafficking. In the state of Texas alone, there are approximately 234,000 workers who are the victims of labor trafficking. And the traffickers exploit nearly $600 million in wages and labor from those victims in our state alone. In fact, 25% of people who are trafficked into the U.S. from other countries come across the border in our state. 25% of them. There's a problem. There are people made in the image of God who are taken from their families and their homes either under false pretense and deception or by use of force 
And their dignity is stripped, their humanity is violated, and they are enslaved in evil and grotesque distortions and acts for the purpose of profit. That is injustice. That is injustice. There's a local organization by the name of Poema, the Poema Foundation, that seeks to raise awareness of that. You find their website online. But they seek to raise awareness of this injustice and provide care for those coming out of this modern day slavery. Slavery didn't end in 1863. It has continued, although it takes different expressions in our world today. Do you you see? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Second of all, the issue of abortion. Issue of abortion. Since 1970, there have been a genocide of generations through the evil of abortion. A, a genocide, church. Between 1970 and, 19, and 2016, the CDC reports that there were 46,413,319 abortions formed, performed in the United States. Over 46 million. In fact, the, that's just 2016. If you fast forward... By 2018, there were 61 million abortions performed in the U.S. That is the genocide of the unborn under our noses. Listen, those babies have no voice to speak for themselves. They need someone who would speak for them. That's why there are organizations who are seeking to provide alternatives to abortion through adoption and care of infants in the womb and counseling to women who are, feel like this is their only option. That's why there's an organization called Selah Creek here in our own community started by one of our former staff members who has opened a maternity home for pregnant, unwed, teenage girls to come and find a place to live when their parents said either terminate the pregnancy or get out of the house. Listen, there's a problem there. I wonder, do we have eyes to see? Do we have ears to hear? And third and finally, there's the issue of race in our culture. Listen, I'm not naive to think that this is not going to fall on people who have all kinds of understandings of this all across the board. Okay, The last time I talked about this, back in 2018, as we preached through the book of Amos, all right? When I introduced the topic of racism, one family got up before I even said a word about it and left. And eventually left the church. Another point and juncture in our church's history, I had one member call me and basically undress me verbally, accusing me of affirmative action toward one of our uh, staff members who was an African American at that time, that I favored him just because he was black and gave him an opportunity to lead just because he had a dark skin color. So listen, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not naive to think that, that, that this doesn't exist. And we could go all kinds of directions with this this morning, but I want to go in one particular direction because I want to show you something this morning, church. I want to, I want to share with you real briefly in the, in the 20th century all the Supreme Court cases that had to be ruled in order to provide protections and rights to our brothers and sisters of a different ethnicity and skin color. In 1938, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the state that provides in-state education of whites must provide comparable in-state education for blacks. In 1944, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that while white-only political primaries were unconstitutional, In 1946, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that segregation in interstate bus travel is unconstitutional. In 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that state and local governments cannot enforce racially restrictive housing covenants or legal documents drawn up by property owners restricting ownership to their preferred race. In 1951, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation in the District of Columbia restaurants is unconstitutional. And that same day, 
in Cicero, Illinois, a mob of 3,500 whites showed up to prevent a black family from moving into an apartment building. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Mexican-Americans and all other racial groups in the U.S. are entitled to equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Also, in 1955, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that public school desegregation must occur with all deliberate speed. In 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled to ban segregation and interstate travel, effectively giving a victory to those supporting the Montgomery bus boycott. In 2007, the U.S. Supreme Court, in two separate cases, ruled that race cannot be a factor in the determination of school assignments when school districts in their cases were still voluntarily using race as a determiner for whether or not that child could come to that particular school. I say all that. I say all that to say this. One thing that becomes overwhelmingly clear as you read through the history of race relations in our culture. Listen, this is an indictment on myself, which the church has largely mirrored throughout her history. Is that not one right or legal protection was ever given to African Americans that they did not have to fight for and work to earn. Why do I say that? Because cases don't make it to the Supreme Court unless this court ruled against it. And then this, or this court ruled, and then this court, and then there was an appeal, and an appeal, and an appeal, and an appeal, and an appeal, all the way up to the highest court in our land. There were legal battle after legal battle after legal battle after legal battle. So that minorities in our nation could enjoy the same rights and protections and privileges that the majority enjoyed. And through it all, the white evangelical church was overwhelmingly either silent or opposed to each legal battle. Now listen, I want to be very careful with my words here. If you are indifferent or apathetic, hostile or opposed to issues of justice in our world today, if you look at the human trafficking issue and you just walk away going, where are we going to eat lunch today? If you look at the issue of abortion and it doesn't stir within your heart something that breaks it. And if you look at the issue of race relations in our culture and you are not moved. Listen, there may be a lump of leaven in your life. Now, we may disagree on what the issues of justice are because I've said it before from this pulpit that every personal issue is not a biblical justice issue. Okay? So you can't hijack this issue of biblical justice and say, well, this is important to me, so if you don't see what's important to me, then you must be oppressing me. That is not the case. Not every personal issue is a biblical justice issue, but there are some broad sweeping justice issues in our culture that I believe are biblical justice issues. I want to encourage you to be willing to listen to the perspective of others. Weep with those who weep. Be moved with mercy toward a faithful pursuit of what is right and just. So that other people can enjoy what is good and pleasant in their human relationships. Listen, this last week, this last weekend, I sat down with some of our brothers and sisters of color. Deacons in the life of our church. And just said, how do you feel right now? What's going on in your life? Tell me what you're thinking. And we talked for an hour and a half about their perspectives about their hurts, about their heartaches. This next week, I'll sit down with law enforcement officers in our church and say, tell me how you're feeling. Tell me what you're thinking. Because you know what I want to see? I want to see reconciliation. And I believe, church, that the God of the Bible His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who was poured out upon all peoples at the day of Pentecost so that while a nation burns, what we need is a fire of the Spirit burning within our hearts to bring about reconciliation between all parties who believe that they've been misrepresented, misunderstood, or wronged. I would love nothing more than to see our brothers and sisters of minority backgrounds and our law enforcement officers and our majority white congregations sit down together and have a conversation about these things. Because I believe then we could begin to take steps forward. And you go, well, I don't see that here. And some of you may not see that here, and that's okay. 
My God, I hope that it's not here. Unseen, corrupting influence in our hearts. But listen, I will say this. Is that as we have opportunity from the Scriptures to address it, then there is a greater chance that lump of leaven will emerge and not be pulled out. If the church is silent on this issue while the culture is raging about it, there's an indictment against us. Now, what do we do with all this? Let me give you two things, and I'll be brief, I think. First of all, let me say something to those who are unbelievers who might be tuning in this morning. First of all, don't confuse religious activity with real Christianity. Don't confuse religious activity with real Christianity. Oftentimes when people begin to consider Christianity, they settle for substituting those internal realities for external appearances. And they just confuse religious activity for real, born-again Christianity. Look at Matthew 27, 28, uh, 23, 27, 28. Jesus pronounces more woes upon the scribes. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus says, don't settle for just outward appearances, external religious activity. But what you need, what we need, is real born-again Christianity to flourish within our churches once again. Not some watered-down version of American civil religion that believes I'm a Christian because I'm an American. I was born in Texas. Of course I'm a Christian. Right? We need real, born again Christianity to flourish so that those who are trying to hijack true Christianity in order to promote their version of American civil religion to control and manipulate people would not find an audience. It would not find an audience at the highest offices of our land. Listen, what we need are more believers who are willing to confess sin, suspect their hearts, and stand for what is right. And listen, church, it starts with, it starts with turning from our own sin and believing upon Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever who's listening this morning, I want you to know your greatest need this morning probably is not more proof or more evidence. That's what the Pharisees were demanding. They wanted more proof. They wanted a sign when they'd already made up in their minds what they thought about Jesus. What you need is not more proof or evidence. What you need is faith and submission. Faith and submission. Because our, 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 oftentimes our issue with Jesus is not intellectual. It is volitional. You know what that means? It's not an issue of the mind, an issue of the will, an issue of the heart. Whether or not we'll bring everything under his authority as we turn from running and ruling our own lives. See, that's what repentance is. Repentance is not just saying, God, I'm sorry for that thing I did back there. God, I'm sorry for that thing I did back there. There are particular aspects of repentance, but listen, there is a holistic aspect of repentance too where you're saying, listen, I am no longer the one who reserves the right to say what I can bring in and what I can't bring in to this life that you've called me to live. See if I can break it down for you this way. A few years ago, I was almost arrested. I thought I was going to be arrested in Heathrow Airport in London as I flew to South Africa. Why? Because I had a four-inch pocket knife in my backpack. Now, if you don't know, any blade over three inches is illegal to carry in London. I know that now. Right? I know that now. Right? Because as the British airport security, kind of our version of TSA, ran my bag through, uh, my, my backpack through their scanners, they pulled it to the side, and I'm like, oh. Been there before, right? Pulled to the side to begin to. They said, Is there anything in here that could hurt me? No, of course not. They begin to dig through it and they pull out the knife and they say, Sir, do you know these are illegal in the UK? And I'm like, Uh, I did not know that. And he said, Are you coming from the US? And so I played the dumb American card. 
right? Yes, I'm, yes, I'm coming from the U.S. I, did, I didn't know, I didn't know, right? And so they confiscated that knife before I could continue to pass through and, and have free access to their country and to board the next flight that I was going to take to South Africa. Listen, I want you to know that when it comes to what ways of thinking and living that we might import into this new life from the old, Jesus reserves the right in every aspect or area of our life to function like the TSA and say, you can bring this on board, but you can't bring this. That you have to leave behind. So many of us, our issue is not an intellectual one with more proof or evidence, but it's a volitional one because we don't want to give up the right to say, what can I bring? We don't want to say to Jesus, you can keep my knife. And if that's you out there this morning, I want to encourage you. Listen, pray that God would bring you to a place of true repentance where you're willing to say, you can keep my knife. Because I tell you what, life on the inside is so much more glorious and joyful and full of hope than life on the outside. So don't confuse religious activity for real Christianity. And then second of all, listen, perceive the pockets of leaven in your life. See, in a in, in comparison to a lump of dough, it doesn't take much leaven to spread through the whole loaf. In many bread recipes that I looked up, right, it was like tablespoons to cups, right? And all these cups of flour to a tablespoon of yeast. In other words, a little bit goes a long way. And Paul makes that point again in Galatians 5, 9 when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So think about this reality that once mixed in the dough, the leaven, though powerful to influence, is unseen, stays hidden, which is why Jesus in verse 15 uses two Greek words that literally mean translated to see. But metaphorically, what they came to mean was to perceive with the mind or heart the reality of the situation, to have understanding. That's what Jesus says when he says, watch out, beware. He's saying, see, perceive, understand, be aware of the leaven that may be in your life, of the corrupting influence under the surface. And then in verse 16, Jesus rebukes them when they think that he's talking about sourdough or wheat or oat, right? We didn't bring enough bread. What are we going to do? And Jesus says, you have eyes and don't see? You have ears and you can't hear? You don't perceive or your heart's hardened? That's how Jesus responds to them. In other words, Jesus is speaking of spiritual realities, but they can't hear him. Jesus is using an object lesson, but they can't see it. He says, are your hearts hardened? Do you not understand? Can you not see? Do you not perceive? And listen, these questions not only ring in the ears of the disciples, but in every disciple of Jesus. Jesus would say to us, would say to us, I, Want to cultivate inner realities in your life? Are you content with external appearances? I want to root out pride and self-righteousness. Are you content and satisfied measuring yourself against others and only thinking that your perspective is valid because you have not perceived or understood? Jesus says, I am for the poor. I am for the voiceless and the oppressed. Are you opposed because there are pockets of leaven in your life and your heart is How do you perceive these things? Listen, through prayer. Through prayer. Let me ask you a question, and I'll close. What do you have to lose? By praying, God, give me eyes to see what I need to see. God, give me ears to hear what I need to hear. Lord, give me a mind to understand what I need to understand, and give me a heart to to perceive what I need to perceive. I wonder if we are open to that prayer and to whatever the Lord would reveal to us in response. As I started the sermon, I wonder what leaven is left in our lives. What have we yet to perceive? Where is there some repentance and reordering that's needed for us? And may God help us leave behind anything that we brought into the land of promise.
from the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, we come today acknowledging our dependence upon you, our need for you. As a church in this nation, we cry out to you. Father, may we not settle for a fabricated American civil religion which is propagated by not only church leaders in our land, but political leaders in our land. May we not settle for that. May we not settle for external, reality, external appearances, but God, may You create internal realities in our life that would deepen and broaden as we walk with You. Father, may You help us see our own pride and self-righteousness, that we would be suspect of ourselves just as much as we may be suspect of others. We'd approach conversations with humility. But God, you would help us to see and have an awareness of the pressing needs. And that as a church, have a ministry to that. Not a program, but a ministry to that. That our hearts would be broken by human trafficking. That our hearts would be broken by abortion. That our hearts would be broken by race relations. And Father, wherever there are pockets of petrification, of those old lumps that we have brought into this new life, would you give us eyes to see it? ears to hear it, minds to understand it, hearts to perceive it, and lives that would take action on it. I pray there may be people who would go to a brother or sister this week and confess a sin in their life. I pray there would be people who in conversations this week would be suspect of themselves. And I pray for all of us that we'd have a heart that would be cultivated with tenderness and mercy for the whole spectrum of injustice within our culture, within our land. May you do these things for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.